0: The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast.
1: What will sustainable shipping look like in the decades ahead? In the climate to cut carbon emissions, it would be easy to forget that building a sustainable business is more than a single topic subject. And yet, as an industry, we've been primarily focused on reducing emissions from ship operations through the development and scaling of alternative fuels. But a sustainable pathway to decarbonisation needs to go beyond the engine and consider the rest of the vessel, including the materials and processes at the construction and recycling stages. It needs to consider how shipping fits into the wider principles of waste reduction, better material flows, reducing and reusing less carbon-intensive materials across global trade. Decarbonisation of the global economy requires massive changes well beyond fuels, more circularity may reduce inefficiencies and give rise to novel solutions that may allow more economic activity using fewer resources and in turn demand less transport of virgin materials and fossil fuels a circular economy may even hold the potential to redefine shipping business models as we know it from a commoditized service to a more value-adding facilitator of a more circular flow of products and materials and services The concept of a circular economy and how it can be applied to shipping has graced the footnotes of many an ESG report over recent years, and it's become something of a sustainability buzzword. But I would argue that the pragmatic and practical consequences of what it actually means in practice, they've not really received the attention they deserve. Well, no longer. The Lloyd's this podcast is on the case. This week's edition is a slightly extended one brought to you in collaboration with our friends at the Sustainable Shipping Initiative. And I'm delighted to be joined by an all-star cast of experts to help us delve into the circular economy and close the loop on what you really need to know. Joining me this week, I have Andrew Stevens from the Sustainable Shipping Initiative, Prashant Wij, from Maersk, Samantha Bramley from Standard Chartered Bank, and Ginger Gus from Lloyd's Register. Thanks for joining the podcast, everyone. Andrew, I want to start with you, if you don't mind, because as I said in the introduction, I think we all have an understanding of what the circular economy is, but it strikes me that it may mean different things to different people. Can you kick us off with your view of what the circular economy is and what it means for shipping?
2: Thank you, Richard. Yes, good day, everybody. We have based the definition of a circular economy on Ellen MacArthur's foundation, Um, definition and that's an economy that is based on principles of designing out waste and pollution keeping products and materials in use and regenerating natural systems and as a result the economy is restorative and regenerative by design and for shipping the opportunity very much lies in embracing these principles and taking the opportunity in today's situation and search and endeavor for decarbonization to take the opportunity to design for end of life and maximize the potential value of the ship at the end of life not only in dollar terms but it's in its potential to reuse these materials or refurbish these materials going forwards excellent
1: well that gives us a good starting point but let's go back to that that point about why the focus has been on decarbonizing fuels and you know it's fair to say that all of the representative companies involved in today's discussion they're all very much focused on that but i think you all probably agree that we need to look beyond that so why is circularity a priority now let's start with you ginger if you don't mind
3: i think that one of the you know the decarbonization is the biggest global crisis we face for shipping it makes up 90 percent of ships emissions footprint and everybody's net zero carbon aims are at the top of the agenda. But what we can't lose sight of is the importance that there is a whole system. And that whole system is the sustainability of shipping. We must not lose sight of the environmental social governance aspects for a sustainable shipping industry. And it's critical that we get this right because we understand that global climate crises will only be resilient for companies that are prepared and being prepared means that there is a good understanding of your use of resources and sustainability and a shared that there's a shared purpose and advancement of companies that are contributing. So in the the global picture, it's about the United Nations and the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, actively working towards the 2030 agenda for sustainable development goals. And indeed, the elements of this agenda will only be realized with a sustainable transportation sector supported by shipping, moving the world's trades and facilitating the global economy in a sustainable way. So this is where the world is counting on shipping to get these things right. And part of that is circularity of ships as assets across each life cycle stage.
1: And uh, all understood. And you're talking about some relatively high concepts there. But you bring it back to that, that pragmatic, practical understanding of what this means. Prashant, let's come to you because... You know, it's fair to say that Musk has has got a number of environmental programs underway. Uh, you know, everything from investing in new energy infrastructure to new types of ships. But what does circularity mean for 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 you? What and what and why is the priority now rather than, you know, down the line when we're talking about you know the big uh, decarbonisation forces that are, are yet to come?
4: Thanks, Richard. Uh- Pleased to be here uh, on this podcast uh, where I really talk about uh, the the practicality of circularity uh, within shipping uh, from us at Maersk. Uh, It's it's quite clear uh, for us in shipping that climate urgency is today the single largest challenge uh, that is facing the society it is a must win for many companies along the global supply chain. And with a purpose that we have, which is to really improve life for all by integrating the world in line with our core values, it is about staying relevant. We are looking at global regulations and that is with an objective to decarbonize our customers' supply chains. With this ambition, we have also then accelerated our net zero ambition by a decade to 2040. And while we look at decarbonization from fuels standpoint, we also must realize that it's not just fuels that will be able to fix the challenge for us. From a circularity standpoint, shipping needs to embrace a life cycle approach to its emissions. Today, we have about 5% of emissions in a life cycle that emerges out of new building and recycling. And in that context, we have to play a role to bring forth recycling of the materials and, and the 4R methodology that Andrew alluded to before as part of the overall equation. And you know
1: what you're touching on there is important because this isn't about a single issue. It's not even about a single sector. This idea of circularity only really works if we're talking about a cross-sector view. Samantha, let's come to you because uh, the reason you're engaged in this discussion as a bank is because, A, it is important because we are talking about the life cycle of assets that you are financing, but you also bring an interesting view from other sectors because, I think it's fair to say that shipping is somewhat behind the curve in terms of this thinking. How, how do you see circularity being applied uh, as a cross-sectoral issue for shipping?
0: Yes, and I, and I think you're, you're quite right. I mean, we have been looking at uh, not only circular economy, but also um, transition requirements for various uh, hard to abate sectors, which is how we count shipping for quite a while now obviously linked to the bigger challenge that has already been discussed on this podcast about climate change. And certainly there are lessons to be learned, I think, from other industries that have generally led the way over the years on on ESG issues, such as mining and oil and gas, who have been working for a long time to see how they can reduce their emissions and apply some sort of circular economy principles. Shipping has somewhat flown under the radar, I think, because it is a hard to abate sector. But that's not sort of something that they can hide behind for much longer, I don't think. And therefore, I think there are lessons that can be taken from other um, relevant sectors. But also, I think there is a positive knock on because as, for instance, oil and gas companies start to realise they need transition plans away from Uh, fossil fuels, they will be coming up with solutions that, of course, ultimately will help the likes of shipping. So, you know, there is a real interconnectedness, I think, between all these industries. And certainly as a bank, I mean, we are under intense pressure, you know, rightly so, to be looking at how we are contributing to the whole sort of net zero agenda in terms of our finance emissions. And a global transition towards a circular economy is obviously integral to this. We're doing a lot of work at the moment looking at how to finance transition strategies, things like, you know, low carbon technology and how we help uh, industries move towards net zero. As I say, circular economy models are definitely part of this. Things like not trying to look at how to reduce energy and carbon uh, emissions in sourcing new materials to build ships. Uh, you know, how to recycle, ship parts, as well as obviously the the more sort of understood things such as operational efficiencies and, uh, and alternatives to using internal combustion engines. So I think, you know, it, it clearly is not a simple solution and we need to look at every part of it. And I think, you know, great to be part of this discussion because you do need a multi-stakeholder approach and, and banks, you know, need to be understanding how they can best help finance Uh, transition
1: models. Andrew coming back to you I mean this must be music to your ears I mean the uh, sustainable shipping initiative have been talking for a long time about the need for a a more multi stakeholder collaboration across the industry you know we need global regulation yes but we need as an industry to be looking and collaborating more with other parts of uh, the global economy and that really is at the heart of this discussion and yet if we look at the discussion that we are having over fuels and regulation and everything else that is the one thing that we are still struggling with it is very very difficult to do this do do you think the discussion has moved on are we ready to have a proper discussion about circularity in this sector
2: yes I, I, i believe so and i believe the connecting of the dots across the sectors um but also as i mentioned there through the value chain and it's it's the value chain stakeholders from civil society through to, you know, cargo owners and and uh, charters through to the ship operations, and then upstream in the value chain, very much like fuels, when it comes to ships, you know, the majority of the of the vessel, somewhere around the eighty to eighty five percent of a vessel is is steel, and of course a lot of other materials and components, but working up to the value chain with the steel producers and the uh, original source of iron ore and then having the discussions with those uh, producers on what is possible in the shipbuilding yards what is possible to achieve the lowering of the emissions that uh, pressure mentioned there in, in the 5% of today's situation will become a larger share of ships emissions going forwards as the fuels are closer to or zero carbon emission fuels. So. We are in a good position. The momentum is definitely there from a fuel's perspective in terms of collaboration and there's definitely the opportunity to do this for the shipbuilding, the steel and those collaborations are um, already being inspired by other associations like Steel Zero uh, emerging from the climate group most recently.
1: I promised tangible examples, and the steel zero uh, example is is a really good place to start. I mean, Prashant, give us the the quick overview of what this is, because it's fair to say that you know you and many other ship owners would like to go out today and buy net zero steel, but it doesn't really exist. So, what what does this program do, and how does it
4: fit into the circular argument? I think I think it's a very clear starting point that steel is an integral part of the shipping value chain we also need to realize that steel is the second largest emitter of carbon across the industries and approximately two to three times that of what shipping emissions today are. When we look at that as the size of the challenge that we have at hand, then as Musk and the first shipping organization to join the climate group, we thought it was an imperative for us to play a role to find low carbon process for primary steel making and thereby adhere to the 1.5 degree pathway in this hard to abate industry. What we then do by joining Steel Zero is to send a clear demand signal and to catalyze the transition to sustainable green steel. The Climate Group is hosting the Steel Zero and it is a global initiative that is bringing together leading organizations to accelerate the transition to a net zero industry. This is in partnership with Responsible Steel, which is, at this point, drafting the steel industry's first global multi-stakeholder standard and certification initiative. By joining Steel Zero, we, of course, underscore our commitment. But at the same time, we also have an opportunity, as Andrew was alluding to, to have access to the other stakeholders in the value chain, Our customers, our suppliers, as well as, for example, our new building yards or the container manufacturers. For, as an example, we have Steel Zero with working groups for different sectors, automotive, renewables, uh, naming a couple of them here. Using this, we are having opportunities to share the best practices across sectors and leverage that within shipping, Excellent.
1: And, you know, demand signals are obviously an important part of that, but there are more practical elements of the circular economy that we can talk about right now. And, uh, you know, the the reality is that we're talking about embedding circular economy principles into every stage of of the actual asset, the, the life cycle from design to construction to operations and recycling. Let's just talk about how we can do that right now. Uh, Ginger, I mean, let's go back to you in terms of uh, you know what, what this practically means. Have you got owners queuing up and, and, and asking how to embed the circular economy into their new building program? Or is this still an alien concept in terms of these discussions?
3: It is not. And it has been um, being researched and studied for many years. What it is, is I think um, Prashant pointed out that Steel Zero and organizations and and affiliations or partnerships like this will be necessary because no one organization will be able to move the supply chain and connect and have all the connectivity because ship assets are so complex. And when you talk about each stage in the life cycle for ships, you're even talking about refurbishment um, or, or dry docking. And things like that, it's really important to have partnerships aligning like-minded organizations so that courageous first movers can really move ahead collectively, work with financial institutions to send the right signals, and um, be able to to take action collectively and uh, change what is on offer in the supply chains, such such as uh, sustainable steel and development of that standard being able to align and have potential extension of a ship's lifespan so so the benefit would be looking at new materials new coatings from uh from various industries and looking at how we can optimize and uh, extend the life lifespan to delay ship recycling by using better materials And then also subscription services, perhaps models within the circular economy, the broader circular economy, are talking about partnerships with suppliers, so that basically you have a a subscription service, and that material is designed uh, with nature-based purpose and solutions, and the item is designed for circularity rather than for um, purchase, use, and waste, uh, another area would be um, even in the plastics industry. Most all of cruise ship companies have campaigns to quit single-use plastic items. So that's an example of where you there's a more circular option. You don't have a waste that's being generated. You have a longer-term solution and a more well-thought-out plan to eliminate those single-use products and wastes.
1: I, th- I think that's a really important point, and. Andrew, I mean, I'll bring you in here because we're talking about the industry coming towards uh, a green shipbuilding revolution. Now, at at what point, you know, this kicks in properly in terms of net zero fuels, it's down the line. But we we have to replace the existing fleet. Uh, We have to look at that transition. Um, And it's going to take some time. But effectively, what we're saying with the circularity argument is that we want these ships to last longer. Now, we know that's feasible, even today, because, you know, we've got... 30 year old plus ships still trading they're earning a fortune at the moment in the right sectors they can go through you know sixth or even more surveys if you uh, pay for steel renewal and you know other assorted expensive maintenance but the reality is that on average the lifespan of vessels is actually getting shorter not longer and that's because markets ultimately dictate vessel lifespan not concepts how do we turn this well-meaning ambition for a more circular economy and translate that into the real world market decisions that are being taken in the in, in the industry.
2: Yeah, I think that it, uh, it's a very good point and and the ability as Ginger was mentioning there is to reuse or, or not only reduce at the beginning but to reuse and refurbish materials and and maybe that modular concept can extend the life of the vessel because it, it's it's very much as you say an an economic decision as well as you know technological uh, evolution that uh, drives uh, the change in in vessels operational life uh, and so the ability to be more modular perhaps going forwards and and maybe Products or materials that are designed for a more durable lifetime, so that you know the, the hull of the vessel is obviously has different requirements from different owners. But uh, in terms of different sizes um, and configurations, if, if that becomes more modular and more flexible, uh, and this is where the design stage of the vessel and the opportunity being now to design for that flexibility and circularity. Is very relevant, as you say, Richard. This this is going through a revolution. The decarbonisation is happening now. New technologies are being considered now, and it really is about bringing the great minds together with the leading owners and investors in shipping that work at the design and build stage. Because whilst we have, you know, a very large spread of owners in the global ocean-going fleet, there are only a, a proportion, uh, and I don't know the number. Um, that are working on the design and build for vessels which end up tearing through the different levels in, in the ownership later in their lives.
1: And and that is one of the problems that we face in this argument. If you're looking at a, a single ship owner buying a ship and operating it through its lifespan, then you know, perhaps there is some element of control. But the average ship goes through, you know, multiple hands and it is under the control of multiple jurisdictions and agencies and controlling interests over its life. You're talking about something that needs to be global uh, by definition, something that is uh, handed across jurisdiction and owner. And as you say, that requires these principles to be embedded, not just in terms of goodwill, but in terms of regulation and financial responsibility and requirements. Again, we're back to very difficult uh, decisions to be taken, not just at an ownership level, but across the value chain. So do you think that that is now part of the conversation at a design stage? And Andrew, I'll, I'll ask you that bit if you don't mind.
2: I think it is It is relevant. It's part of the puzzle as always in shipping and and, and much of shipping's change and evolution is, is driven by needed regulation. Um, I can refer perhaps to the, the emergence of the EU taxonomy where there are six key principles um, transition to a circular economy being one of those and pollution prevention and control being another which are, are quite relevant to this This discussion uh, and that puts very much the onus on the large operating companies and the uh, investors and financial institutions to to drive forward against these principles uh, and for driving in particular transparency and data required to to track and trace um, performance in this regard so that's one of the regulatory instruments that's emerging. And uh, Ginger mentioned the IMO, Uh, they already have focus on developing life cycle guidance for fuels. And, and, you know, the life cycle aspect of the rest of the ship being the steel and the materials would also be a, a useful intervention going forwards.
1: Samantha is finance on board with this? How, how do you reward circularity because if we look at you know other finance involvement in this discussion, I'm thinking specifically of the Poseidon principles um, you have the banks you know trying to construct a framework to make the right decisions to keep themselves on the right side of that curve. But if you ask the ship owners, they feel perhaps they're not necessarily being rewarded for taking the right decision. They're just being punished for being on the wrong side of uh, the, the bell curve. Is there anything finance can do to add a little bit more carrot and a little bit less stick into this equation?
0: I think it's a very valid position because I think banks have typically been more stick, I think, than anything. I mean, you know, as a bank, we've set very aggressive, um, you know, 2050 net zero targets for all our, our financed emissions, which which means, you know, our clients need to be net zero by 2050. And in 2022, we've developed specific emission targets for shipping, um, alongside other um, industries like aviation and road transport. So, you know, it does mean there is a large pressure on our shipping clients to demonstrate that they have got Uh, transition plans uh, to net zero based on sort of credible global standards like science-based targets or frankly we won't be able to continue financing them um, because if we do we will miss our the commitments that we've made so yes there is a lot of pressure on our clients however I think what we are trying to do to offer a bit of a, a carrot is that you know we have committed you know a large pod of financing to specific transition activities. I think what we are trying to do is say, look, we recognize that we are pushing um, a big requirement on you, but you know, trying to help them get there by putting up funds that can be accessed for specific transition-related activities. I mean, on the other side of the coin, we're, we're developing a huge sustainable finance team, which is growing exponentially at the moment to try and again, encourage more of the carrot side of it through offering um, you know green bonds and blue bonds and these sort of sustainable products that do offer um, some sort of uh, basis point discount for achieving certain kpis related to uh, reducing emissions and things like that so we are trying to be better at doing the whole sort of package, not just the stick. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's no doubt that there is a lot of pressure on our clients to get to net zero.
1: Prashant, listening to what Samantha saying there about the financial incentives, do you feel that that is now part of the conversation you're having, not just with your, your charters but your, your banks? And do you think that there is enough understanding amongst the people in your value chain about what this unified interpretation of circularity actually means in
4: practical terms? Yes, Sir Richard, that is the case. Um, And and we need to have a clear unified interpretation of what circularity means in shipping. We know that more than 90% ships are being built in China, South Korea, and Japan, and more than 90% are being recycled in South Asia, primarily in Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. So for us, shipping circularity would really mean to aim for the net loop and not physical loop. Now, when we approach this, we will have barriers along the way. And I think the single largest barrier here is the fact that we do not have a clear policy, a definition, a standard, and a certification regime around this. From the demand side, of course, we are one of those, but we need more followership to bring steel and the demand for net zero steel going forward within shipping. And to come to the financing piece and what Samantha was mentioning, we've recently launched our ESG strategy where we cover 14 categories across all MERSC, material sustainability, responsibilities, risk, and opportunities. In that, for the first time, we also issued a green bond and that was to fund our first methanol vessels. Also, in November last year, we've launched our green finance framework, designed to allow the company to issue a variety of sustainable financing instruments. So clearly, we are seeing fantastic support coming in from the financial sector in this context. And Ginger, on that point around the uh, the
1: signals that you know financial investment requires. I mean, if we were looking at this in a traditional model we'd be talking about return on investment, pure and simple. It's about efficiency. It's about how, uh, you know, the cost is ultimately going to get paid back and, and, and what that means for the business model. But as I said at the outset, you know, if we're looking at this on a more global basis, we have to consider new business models. And, you know, factoring in circularity and sustainability is about thinking about those models. And, you know, this is now part of your license to operate. Do you think that that is now being factored into those financial decision-making processes at the beginning of the equation.
3: I think it definitely is factoring heavily. And uh, we're all facing a lot of global crises and companies that are robust and have the depth of the environmental social governance purpose also will, will um, be able to weather and be resilient to these global crises. So um, organizations are seeing that their business blueprints or strategies must include environmental social governance. And the circular circularity of the shipping industry is key. And again, the solutions will be unique to shipping and it should be um, clear understanding of the definition. Things like sustainable steel standards will help us along this path. But we have to rethink the way we've done things in the past from every stage of the ship uh, life cycle, from design to build to operation, refurbishment and dry dock, as well as ship recycling.
1: And Andrew let's let's end with you almost where we began because what we have spoken about today is not necessarily going to have surprised many of our listeners i suspect because these conversations around sustainability uh, require a level of collaboration and engagement that are well beyond their scope as individual operators we're talking about cross-sectoral industry engagement around big meaty topics that are going to take generations in order to actually come to fruition. Is what you're hearing today around that collaboration, you know, positive noises, I think, you know, in terms of, of, of us making progress, is that, is that filling you with with some optimism? Are we having uh, a, a new way of thinking, uh, you know, coming forward at us? At what pace? What, what's your thoughts?
2: Right. Yes, it, it is given um, pause for optimism and, and and listening to Samantha and the role that the stakeholders can play uh, is great. The search for that collaboration by Maersk and, and Lloyd's Register is also very encouraging. And as has been shared here, that you know, steel and other materials used in, in a ship's life cycle are, are not unique to shipping sector alone. And so the engagement, as you say, Richard, across sector and connecting dots, not only uh, through the learnings of engaging with other sectors on, on where they have uh, managed to drive circularity, through their, their their products and their services, is connecting dots through the value chain. Uh, and that's very much shipping search right now for fuels and technologies that are being used in the search for decarbonization. So connecting those dots through the value chain from consumer to upstream producer is essential. And associations um, like Steel Zero that Merck have recently joined are essential. Uh, facilitators in in that happening along with the the producers and and the origin of the source of the the materials. So the opportunity I see is is very much driven by shipping's decarbonisation and the moment is now in terms of redesign of vessels which are are on the table for the new fuels and technologies and it's essential that this opportunity is grasped from a circularity perspective to reduce, reuse, refurbish and avoid the linear take, make, waste, and recycle uh, process and model that we currently see happening.
1: Wonderful. Well, if this conversation has whetted your appetite, and why wouldn't it? I would highly recommend uh, going and reading the SSI's most recent report, Exploring Shipping's Transition to a Circular Industry. It's well worth uh, a read. Um, My thanks to all our guests this week, uh, Andrew, Prashant, Samantha, and Ginger. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, We'll be back next week.